Grace, mercy, and peace be to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, you all heard the account. Jesus was with his disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked the question, Who do people say that I am? That is such a good question. Not just for the disciples then, but for us here and now. It's a question that we can be asking other people to open up the conversation to deeper things about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Who do you say that Jesus is? Have you ever asked anyone that question? And if so, what sort of response did you get? It used to be that some people viewed Jesus simply as a teacher of morality, right? Or that he was someone who just helped people who were in need. He was a a doer of good deeds. Some have said that Jesus was a rebel. He was standing up to the oppressive political and religious systems in his day. Or maybe some people say that, you know, Jesus was a, a miracle of workers, at least maybe in the past. Often today, people with their scientific skepticism cast doubts on whether Jesus actually walked on water or fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. It's interesting, you ask the question and what people say about Jesus when it's based upon their own opinions and their own cultural lenses, well, they come up short on describing who Jesus really is. Jesus asked, who do people say that I am to his disciples? And the answer that the first disciples gave were kind of this summary based on the public opinions and the cultural lenses in their time and in their place. Well, some say John the Baptist. You all know John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, who spoke the prophetic word of the the kingdom of God that was at hand, who was so bold to confront King Herod in his sin and ultimately lost his head because of it. Some say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. All these people from the Jewish cultural past who spoke God's word to God's people and who, when they spoke God's word to God's people, sometimes had signs and wonders that go on with them, calling out people's sin, announcing God's grace to repent, and then having their word fulfilled to show that they were authentic and they were vindicated. Well, certainly these people were not far off on who Jesus was. Jesus is, in fact, a prophet. But that's not the full picture. He is so much more. Then he turns the question to the disciples and said, but who do you say that I am? Now, the twelve had been with Jesus. They had heard him teach. They had seen him heal. They had witnessed him walking across the stormy sea and command the waves and the wind to be still, they knew better than anyone who walked on earth at that time who Jesus was. And so Simon Peter, on behalf of the twelve, answers, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, certainly... Simon Peter and the others had seen. They had experienced and heard the preaching, the teaching, the signs, and the wandering. But 
all of the things that their flesh and their blood had seen and their reason had experienced and their logic tried to comprehend did not lead them to this confession that Jesus is the Christ. Listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't come up with this answer on your own, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. Jesus is saying what Luther centuries later paraphrases in his uh, small catechism. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. It's not revealed by reason, strength, or logic. The blessing for Peter and the others is that the Father has graciously revealed, opened their hearts and minds to see and to believe in who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And we shall be asking, well then, who is Jesus and what has he come to do? Now, Simon Peter claims that Jesus is the Christ. Now that is a title. That is not Jesus' last name right? The Christ, or in Hebrew, Messiah. Christ in Greek, for the title, Messiah in Hebrew, both mean the same thing, anointed one. See, from the time of Exodus, priests were anointed with, with oil, meaning that there is this heavily perfumed oil that was poured on the heads of the priests to mark them as ones who were set aside or set apart for this holy office of being a priest. And what did they do? Well, they offered prayers on behalf of the people. They made sacrifices to atone for the people's sin. They were set apart. Later on in the history of the Israelites from the time of Saul, kings then were also anointed with this perfumed oil to mark them as ones who were set apart to rule over the people. And so also Elisha was anointed by Elijah to be anointed as a prophet. So to be anointed in such a way was to indicate God's choice for these men to serve in these particular offices to do these particular things as prophets, as priests, and as kings. Now the thing is, when you come to the first century Palestine, the word Christ or Messiah took on kind of a new meaning for the disciples and for all the people who lived in Jerusalem. In the face of Roman, occupied, uh, Roman occupation, along with the fact that there were all these pagan worship and worship things and practices, the faithful Jews were looking forward to the anointed one, God's own Christ, who would come and do any number one of things. Maybe he'd be coming as the king, mighty in power, to drive out the Romans. Or maybe he would be coming as a mighty prophet of old to bring down fire and brimstone against the, the enemies of God's people and, and all their false worship or as one who leads the people of God by bringing about sort of a priestly or a spiritual reform of God's people. This and more were kind of wrapped up in that term 
Christ or Messiah. The problem that presents itself in Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ is not that he is wrong in making that confession. It's that people were all over the map in their expectations and what they expected the Christ or the Messiah to do. And so Jesus says, instead of using this politically charged or religiously charged title, he tells them, don't tell anyone that I am the Christ, at least for now. No, in fact, Peter's confession, the confession of the twelve, really, was right on the mark. Revealed by God the Father to the twelve, Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But how was Jesus anointed? No one came up to him with perfumed oil, except much later in his ministry, and put it on his feet and his hands. But Jesus was first anointed as he was baptized in the Jordan by John. Anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit to fulfill the occupation or the vocation, the office of the Messiah, the Christ. The voice of the Father proclaimed Jesus to be the Son, and from that time on, Jesus is taking up this mantle and living out what it means to be the Christ. But what kind of Christ is he? We find that Jesus is the perfect prophet who speaks faithfully the will of the Father. He is the perfect priest who not only cries out for God's people, but who is also the sacrifice that is offered for the sin of the world. Jesus is the perfect king who does not battle with the Romans, but with all of mankind's enemies of sin, death, and the devil. Jesus is anointed, see, he is baptized, anointed by the Spirit to fulfill all of these offices, all at the same time, for the salvation of all of his creation. And we see this most clearly the cross of Calvary. From the cross, Jesus speaks the prophetic word as he himself is experiencing the wrath of God against our sin. He is the object lesson of the prophets, like the spoiled girdle that Jeremiah used to illustrate sin's corruption of the people or the the crushed jars that, that Jeremiah used to illustrate God's anger against sin. See, Jesus in his flesh is crushed for our iniquities. But as he's dying on the cross, he's also doing so as the perfect priest, pleading to the Father that the sins of the people would be forgiven at the same time as he himself is being offered up as the sacrificial lamb of God whose blood is shed for the atonement of sin for the whole world. There on the cross is hanging Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, who has come not to subjugate his enemies, but to serve and to save his people from the true enemies of all mankind. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if it would have ended there, the office of Christ would have been done. 
But after his three-day rest in the tomb, his resurrection from the dead, Jesus is vindicated. Every word that he spoke was shown to be true and trustworthy. He said that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would rise. And look, it was just as he said. He is the perfect prophet. He keeps his word. Here is the lamb who was slain as the sacrifice for the sin of the world. But now look, he is risen, he is living, and he has begun his reign. The perfect priest has made the ultimate sacrifice, and it would be acceptable to the Father. For the sin of the whole world has been atoned for, mine and yours. The perfect priest holds the victory over the enemies of mankind. Sin is forgiven by the shedding of his blood. Death is defeated in the resurrection. And the devil has been dealt his death blow. Now at Pentecost, this is the content of Peter's preaching and the content of the preaching of all the apostles. The preaching of Jesus as the Christ, this kind of Christ, and his work for all is the rock upon which the church stands. You notice in the text that Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. He gives him a new identity, doesn't he? And his name now means rock because he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And that can be said probably of uh, not just Peter, but all the apostles who preach Christ, who is the rock of our salvation. For the person is not separated from the content of their preaching. As the apostles preach Christ, see, they are little rocks. As pastors publicly preach Jesus and him crucified and risen, they also are little rocks. And guess what? As you privately, not in secret, but in your God-given offices, you preach Christ to your families, to your co-workers, to whoever it is that God puts in your path, you also are little rocks. In fact, all who have been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection are little rocks. Or as St. Peter, the rock, first said, you're living stones. We sang that in stanza three in our hymn today. As you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are living stones. And being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, in your baptism and by faith in Christ, you are living stones, little rocks, little Christs. What Jesus prohibited the disciples from speaking in Caesarea Philippi before his suffering and death he then authorized them to proclaim, starting in Galilee, after his resurrection and before his ascension. Go. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
and as you are doing so, they are receiving a new identity, a new name. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded, namely, what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I make a prophetic promise to you. Lo, I am with you always to the very end of this age. You, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, have been baptized into Christ, and you have become a living stone and a co-confessor of Christ's work on our behalf. You are being built upon Christ the cornerstone by the will of the Father through word and through sacrament. You are a little Christ who speaks a prophetic word, who lives as a son or a daughter of the king, and who offers an offering of, a sacrifice of offering of prayer and praise. For your foundation is in Christ, the rock of our salvation. You are disciples of the Lord. I want to leave you with a, a, a word, final word of encouragement. It's kind of interesting. When, when Jesus asked these questions to the disciples, they were in Caesarea Philippi, and you might think like I do sometimes, like, well, what does that matter? Well, this region is 120 miles from Jerusalem. It's the furthest away that you could get from the Pharisees, from the scribes, and from the physical temple itself, the place where sacrifices were made and where the worship of God was. In fact, this re region was the home to the ancient Canaanites. Remember last week we encountered the Canaanite woman who came to Jesus? Well, in this region, on the, the, the slopes of Mount Hermon, there is a cave that has this seemingly bottomless pit of water in it. And the ancient Canaanites, they saw this as a holy place. They built a sanctuary to, to Baal there. Later, as the Greeks and then the Romans came, they built different sanctuaries around this cave, one to Pan, one to Zeus, and then one to Augustus the emperor. That's to say that as Jesus is talking to his disciples, they are in the context of a land filled with temples to false gods, a place with pluralistic worship practices and uh, uh, deviancies of all sorts. It's not a stretch to say that it's not unlike Bloomington. The reason that the Canaanites, the Greeks, and the Romans built their temples in that location was that cave, that pit of water, was so deep that each time the ancients tried to sound the depth, they didn't have anything long enough to hit the bottom. And it filled them with awe and with fear. They concluded that this pool was a dwelling place of the gods and a gateway to the underworld. In fact, the people in that region knew this pool as the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. So the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, was a place of worship for the false gods, the false ideologies, the false hopes of the people of Caesarea Philippi. As such, it stood as an example, an object lesson, for all that is contrary to the Holy Christian and Apostolic Church. 
And so when, Peter told, uh, when Jesus told Peter and the others that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, he was telling them that there was going to be opposition. He was telling them that the false gods, the false ideologies, and the false hopes that the people had would come in direct conflict to the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ. But see, here is where the prophetic word of Jesus comes again. That even in the midst of the opposition and the conflict, Jesus said, the church will stand. It will stand on the foundation of Christ Jesus, the rock of our salvation. Christ's church will stand even though the devils and all the world rail against it. And you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, will stand as you are built upon Christ, even though you may suffer and face opposition. For Jesus, the perfect prophet, has promised, I will be with you always, even in the midst of this culture, this community, wherever you may be, to the end of this age. So stand firm in your faith, anchored in Christ the rock, built by his word and his sacraments through the, the preaching and the teaching of the apostles who have gone before you. And look to Christ Jesus for strength in opposition, for forgiveness for your sin, and hope, knowing that Christ the King will come in glory to raise the dead and vindicate his church. For you are in Christ you are living stones. You are built upon the rock. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.